All right. Um, really appreciate uh, your prayer, Taylor. There's a lot in this passage. It can be easy to get caught in the weeds. Uh, this passage could probably be an entire sermon series right by itself. You struggle when you preach to decide, do you take kind of the whole thing that's being said, or do you take these very, very um, detailed and nuanced pieces? Maybe at some point we'll come back to this and we'll go through it at a slower pace, but um, I actually think it's, it is better for us to first look at the whole thing, <laughs> because we're so used to opening our Bibles and looking at the little pieces on their own. So that's my, I guess that's my caveat. So I, um, I've been reading through, I've been reading a lot of different things, and so this has been kind of sporadic, but I've been reading through uh, Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. I love Douglas Adams. He's, he's uh, clever and doesn't take himself too seriously and uh, a bit sarcastic, and that just speaks to me. <laughs> um, but in this, this, this satirical sci-fi series, um, there is this guide, the, the guide that the series is named after, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it's exactly that. It's a guide, it's an encyclopedia, if you will, a guide to all things that are there. And it has some funny excerpts. Uh, the only thing that it says about Earth is harmless. Actually, it's the old version. The, the character who is tasked with updating this guide says, well, he made a change to it recently. It'll be out in the next print. It's changed to mostly harmless. His advice on always carrying towels. Uh, but the bit that I really love, the thing was the third book, it talks about flying. And this is what it says. There's an art to flying, a knack. The key is to throw yourself at the ground and miss. <laughs> it's a pretty good description. And um, then its slogan overall, its, general, its, its overwhelming slogan is don't panic. Trying to convince you that the guide has your back. It's a funny idea, and it's one that we really like. Um, we really like this idea. And because of that, there are so many self-help books and coaching strategies and religious systems that try to capitalize on this idea of, well, what if there was a guide to life and the universe and everything? We tend to look at our faith as Christians in a similar way. Like somehow in Christianity, there is this clear and detailed guide that we have of how to respond to all of life's questions, all of life's situations, all of life's problems. As we continue to talk about what it looks like to walk in a worthy manner in this new life in Christ, I have good and bad news for you. The good news is that in Christ, we actually are offered the context and tools to walk faithfully in every part of life. The bad news is it's not simple. It's not didactic. It's not as practical as the handbook that we want it to be. 
The Hitchhiker's Guide, I think, chokes of this itself. When asked why it only says mostly harmless about Earth, uh, the character Ford says, well, there's how many stars in the galaxy? <laughs> there's only so much memory in the guidebook. So some things get a one-word entry. And that's important for us to realize. Last week, we talked, actually the last two weeks, we talked a bit about what it looks like practically to walk as new people in Jesus Christ. And in that, Paul talked about our whole walk as Christians as two interconnected concepts, walking in peace, unity and selflessness and honesty and vulnerability, and walking in purity, following the moral law. But we talked about that within the context of this letter. And if you can't tell, I think context is incredibly important. So I'm going to go through it one more time. Paul is talking to these Ephesians, this somewhat confused church, about what it means and what happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. When we join him in his death and resurrection and are made new people, actually a new person, if you remember back, together. The God, the greatest power that there is, used his power in that ultimate act of raising his son from the dead so that we might be raised with him. And it's in the context of that new life, it's because of that new life that we grow at all as new people with new gifts in a new community in Jesus Christ. And because of this, we can pursue a life that Paul calls worthy of our calling. And he reminds us of this even here in this exhortation. He tells us that we have been changed. We were in darkness. Now we are children of light. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. Now in Christ we are the sons and daughters of God. We were heirs of wrath. Now in Christ we are heirs of blessing and of life. This is the gospel. And honestly, if that's all that we walk away with today, hallelujah. That's enough. But it's in the context of that gospel that Paul feels comfortable stepping forwards a little bit and telling us what a worthy life looks like, what it will look like as we are transformed into the people that God has called us to be. And that's what we've been looking at. And honestly, <laughs> for those of us ready to be told how to live well, the last couple of weeks may have been a little bit dissatisfying. Because in our handbook mentality, we hoped that Paul would get specific. But he didn't. He didn't even add anything to the old moral law. It was way more shorthand than that. Just a summary. 
And here's, I think, the second thing. If the gospel is the first thing that we can take away, the second thing that if we can walk away with, and that's it, is this. Walking in a worthy manner with Christ can't be described in one letter. It's way more complicated than we want to make it. It's way bigger than some list of do's and don'ts. And that's where Douglas Adams hits the nail on the head. There are hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxy and only a limited amount of memory in the book. And if you allow me the Christian posturing for a moment, this is where our faith is different. This is where our faith is so much more than any other religion. Keller liked to differentiate between religion and faith. And it rubs some people the wrong way. But the idea is that religion, and how it falls out and everywhere else, is a set of rules that tells us how to navigate life. But our faith is not that. And the reason is because real life is far too complicated. It's far too complicated for some set of rules. Rather, what Christianity gives us is a new life, a new way of living, one that is more than moral rules. But it's more about how we walk in all places and our very attitude as we do so. And Paul gives us a very clear picture here, I think, in the three ways that we actually go about the messiness of walking in Christ in this complicated world. And here they are. I'm not one usually for three points, but you can jot them down if you want to. What we need is honest knowledge of sin. We need to develop wisdom and we need to be influenced by the joy of the Holy Spirit. So, however we want to paint it, some of what it looks like to walk this new path does mean to follow a moral model like we expect. There's no two ways about it. I'm going to sit up here and tell you this doesn't contain detailed answers about every question that you're going to come up with. It's all, this one's really big because the print's huge, but it's really not that big of a volume if that's what you want it to do. But scripture does offer pictures and instructions of what is and is not pleasing to God in some areas. Paul summarized it, right? Peace being unity and honesty and vulnerability and selflessness and purity Righteousness and justice, and he talks about that as sexual purity and the rejection of covetousness and greed, but it's the whole spectrum of what's in the moral law. And as new people, we walk in an interesting tension. We're told throughout the New Testament that we are free from the consequences of the law, that it has been put to death. But we're also people who embody the law, because we embody God. 
And so everything that he told us about who he is and who he has made us for and how he has designed this world to function, it still holds for us. Actually, it holds even more for us. Even if there's no condemnation. Paul actually takes a huge amount of time in this passage, verses 5 to 14, to tell us that as new people in Christ, we have to embrace a truth that is very unpopular in this world today, that sin is real and incompatible with our new lives. And to understand that, we have to understand three things. First, sin is pervasive. It's present in all of our lives. Paul formally told us that we all walked in the way of the Gentiles. That we were all sons of disobedience. Our cultural humanistic optimism tells us that most of us are basically good people. Scripture tells us the opposite. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The second thing that we have to understand about sin is that it's deep. That we are capable of the darkest and deepest flaws, every one of us. Most of us spend our life trying to see ourselves as better than. Okay, maybe I'm bad, but at least I'm not as bad as them. That's something that even I would never do. The old phrase... There, but for the grace of God go I, has been very important in my life. So when I see something that seems horrible, I must remember that if not for God's grace, that's me. Paul offers himself up. He calls himself the chiefest of sinners. He tells us that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous and idolater has no inheritance. It's not a little thing. It's the full thing. So there's this, <laughs> I looked for the video. A while back I talked about this and I could find the video. It seems like it has been scrubbed from the internet and I don't know why. Um, Yehiel Denur was a survivor of concentration camps. Now, the video of his testimony is still out there. Um, when Adolf Eichmann was caught and tried for, you know, he's known as the architect of the Holocaust. When he was tried, one of the par part of this trial was bringing people that he had wronged into the courtroom to testify. And the video of, of Denur is striking. Um, he, he talks, he's a writer, he talks very kind of poetically, um, and then he has this breakdown. Like he falls on the floor and convulses. The video that's, I can't find anymore, but I have seen it, um, is one of, of Mike Wallace um, interviewing Denur and asking him, well, what was going on there? Like, was it pure hatred? Was it just falling apart the, in the face of evil? And what Denur said was poignant. He said, not hatred, but hatred about human beings. I was afraid about myself. I'm capable to do this. 
I'm capable, exactly like him, it's me. Because what Denur saw when he looked at Eichmann was not the devil. He was a man. And he knew in that moment that he had the capability of evil in him. And that's something that we have to know. The third thing that we have to know is that sin deserves and results in the wrath of God. We hate this idea in our culture. That our sin bears the real weight of guilt and that sinners, as sinners, we are due the wrath of God in its fullness. In our very nature of sons of disobedience, we inherit wrath. One of the reasons, we can talk about it more later if you like that. I like the wording of the Apostles' Creed that we use. Um, and the tricky one for a lot of people is that in one version it says he descended to hell. And this one it said he descended to death. There's a lot of reasons for that argument. It's not argument against hell. Um, but what I like about it is it points to the original curse of the fall. The consequences of sin is death. And throughout scriptures, death is seen as like the greatest of all of evil's powers. Because that is what we are due. We are due the wrath of God. Heirs of it. We push against this idea in our culture. It's maybe the most unattractive idea about sin, that somehow there's this God sitting out there somewhere that would oppose upon a free people some system of arbitrary morality and then judge them and punish them for it. We hate that idea in our humanistic selves. But here's the thing. We've spent quite a few years now kind of pushing against this idea and pushing into uh, humanism and then postmodernism and this idea that we just kind of do what we will and no one's out there who can tell me what life should look like except for me. But our culture is swinging back the other way now. We have this idea today, now, right now, in our culture around us, that there is a real thing called evil. We don't call it that. And it deserves an unquenchable wrath. The rubric for what sin in has changed. But we've shifted from an anything-goes postmodern moment to a point today where anyone who transgresses a continually narrow and moving picture of goodness, they're unreconcilably canceled. They're condemned with no chance for forgiveness. Forgiveness itself is beginning to be seen as a broken and toxic and manipulative idea. We're all actually really okay with the idea of wrath. But what we should see in the midst of this moment is that if the wrath of humans against our ever-changing idea of morality is heavy, then the wrath of an all-powerful creator, a completely holy God, will be much heavier. And so it's important for us to know what we're called to. That we as children of God understand the truth of sin, that we understand and Discern what please is pleasing to God and what is the law of God. 
And Paul tells us here that we expose sin. Now we have to be careful. We're not building a tattletale culture. That's not what this is. But what he's talking about here is building a culture of honesty and vulnerability, some of those things he talked about when he talked about purity. Where we can know one another and we can be honest about our failings. And that sounds terrifying. How do we do this? We do this by taking sin seriously. Not dismissing the reality of it and honestly seeing ourselves as sinful. And we do this without collapsing under the weight of it, without being crushed the way that Denur was, by remembering the truth that Paul's exhortation rests in. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. See, as we look at our lives through the lens of Jesus Christ, who has put to death in us and is putting to death in us the sinful person that we were, who has brought to life in us and is resurrecting in us this new righteous and just person that we are in him, then we can begin to see the will of God not as a crushing impossibility, but as the joyful reality that we are being pulled more and more into from where we were before. And it's only in the light of that, it's only in the light of grace and the work of Jesus Christ that we can be honest about the reality of sin. Only in that light that we can even begin to walk in integrity and moral righteousness and justice and peace without the terror that we will fail and be children of wrath once more. Because we are no longer darkness, we are children of light. Even as we struggle and stumble and fall, the truth of our inheritance can't be stripped away from us. And this allows us to be honest about sin and walk in the commands that God has given us. So great. We do have a handbook. Follow the law, walking as children in the light. Well, not, let's pull back, not a handbook. Following instructions is great. But we're called to be a new people, not simply old people who follow new instructions. And there is a difference. A life in Christ is much more than following the moral rules. There are a lot of little rules in the Old Testament, but there's really not that many if you think about everything in life. We need more than that. And as hard as that is, as impossible as it is to like follow the instructions, we need more. We need to know Well, this is one of the reasons that we need to know that freedom that we have in Christ, being in the light. 
Because we have to be able to walk without fear of condemnation in this whole life, which is much bigger. Following the law only gets you so far. There's billions of stars and a limited amount of resources. Lots of harm has been done to the mindset that this book right here can give us direct instructions for everything that you come across in your life. That everything that matters for the walk of Christ is covered in these pages. It's a huge misrepresentation of what the Bible is. And it leaves us with one of two problems, either a diluted picture of the Christian walk itself or a diluted picture of life itself. And it leaves us with this impossible hermeneutical task. If scripture addresses everything that matters, and this is, these are the numbers that I've come up with, it means that only about 15% of our choices matter. Because that's really all that's in here. It's probably lower, but I'm being generous. And Christianity then is only a part of life. And our religious choices are separated and divorced from the rest of our lives. On the other hand, if scripture addresses everything in life, then either either this life is much more simple than I've experienced. (laughs) Or there's far more in this relatively small volume than there could possibly be. And any issue can be solved if we know how to read the text correctly, and that makes, either makes our concordance our magical decoder ring, or we participate in what I grew up calling lucky dipping, where you kind of like ask the spirit a question. Okay, how do I make that work? <laughs> we laugh because we've been there. And what happens is then we're continually twisting the scripture until they lay over our problems, saying things they never intended to say. And both sides of this are harmful because the moral law, as I said, I think it covers about 15% of our choices. And then the other 85% of our life, we're still called to walk as children of God. And we don't do this through lucky dipping or twisting scripture to cover everything. We do this through this complicated thing that scripture calls wisdom. It's a short part of this passage, but it's crucial. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So what is wisdom? We have a common misconception Misconception, actually, I think we have two misconceptions of what wisdom is and how it lines up with our handbook view of life. See, those of us who see 15% of our life is spiritual and the other 85% is up for grabs, what wisdom equals is implied intelligence. It's a logical and rational way that we approach life. It's how the enlightened of us, actually the Hellenistic of us, if you want to really get into it, engage with life. But this is actually counter to how Paul understands the life of a Christian and the gospel itself. This is what he says about wisdom and about the gospel in 1 Corinthians. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Paul sees God's wisdom as contrary to worldly wisdom. So that 85% of life can't just be up to our fleshly intelligence. On the other hand, those of us who see scriptures answering every question, the lucky dippers out there, wisdom just becomes second-tier morality. This is how I've heard wisdom used in the church a lot. Second-tier morality, when we say to someone, well, I'm just not sure that's wise, what are we saying? We're saying, that's really a bad move. I'm not going to call it sin, but it's kind of sin. And that's also unbiblical. See, wisdom is often in the Old Testament is far from morality. Actually, it's even intentionally contradicting itself in places in order to get at the ambiguity of our life. Proverbs famously tells us, this is two verses right next to each other, 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him himself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what is it? How do I answer the fool? Well, if wisdom is second-tier morality, there's a problem right there. Because one of those statements has to be immoral. Biblical wisdom is actually something else. It's an acknowledgement that our world, particularly our fallen world, is messy. That in the brokenness that we live in under sin, walking always in Christ is often messy and unclear. We're given some illustrations of what it looks to live wisely. But I think more accurately, when we look at biblical wisdom, what we're given is a picture of what it looks like to work out wisdom within our understanding of the gospel. And that's what we see in places like Proverbs, where we have these contradictory statements. Your 85% decisions, if you were, they are absolutely a part of walking as children of the light, but they are not clear moral decisions. They must be approached in wisdom. In that way, It makes the best of the time. And the idea behind this is that the current time, the time is wicked. It's broken by sin. And we walk within it, making the best out of it in the gospel. And if simply walking well in the clear-cut moral commands is hard, walking in a messy changing, sometimes wise, sometimes not wise, answer the fool, don't answer the fool, wisdom is impossible. And that's where the gospel reality comes into this again. For one time you were darkness, now you are light. In the Lord walketh children light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. As we look at our lives through the lens of Jesus Christ, who has put to death and is putting to death the foolish person that we were, and is bringing, brought to life and bringing to life this new wise person in him, we can begin to walk this path of wisdom. Finally, we're told, We're not only to walk in the knowledge of his commandments and in the messiness of his wisdom, but we're to walk in the joy of his spirit. 
I'm not going to spend as much time here. I'm reaching that point where my brain's telling me you've got to wrap it up, which I never listen to. But this, get, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's not a moral command like those from before. It is not a command against drinking. Full stop. Paul gets a little bit grammatically messy in his writing sometimes. It's who he is. It's kind of fun. But to drop a commandment here, like well after the section where he was giving commandments, would be a literary train wreck. It doesn't make any sense. Here's some commandments. Now let's talk about how you walk in them. Oh, oh wait, I got another one for you. It's not what's going on. It's not a commandment against drinking alcohol. See, proof texting is problematic. <laughs> if you concordance this one, you might be giving the wrong advice. What it is doing is contrasting a worldly and insufficient joy with a spiritual joy. Because this is the point here. Look at what it's connected to. Why is it so hard to walk in righteousness and justice? <laughs> because sin. Those powers, the world, the devil, and the flesh have such a stubborn hold on us. And why is it so hard to walk in wisdom? Well, because of sin. Because those same powers, the world, and the devil, and the flesh have made such a mess of this world of God's creation. And in that difficult and seemingly impossible situation, there is so much despair. And Paul wants to acknowledge that. But how do we deal with despair, not in our fleshly nature, or what we do in our fleshly nature, what do we do? We anesthetize. We numb ourselves. Paul uses alcohol to show us this, not to disparage alcohol, something scripture calls good in other places. Yes, there's lots of rules about how we can be wise. See there, I did it. Rules and wisdom. There's wisdom about alcohol out there. Okay, it's not what's going on here. Do you know why alcohol makes you happy, scientifically? Alcohol is actually depressant. Doesn't make sense to understand what a depressant does. It shuts off a part of your brain. That's what it does. That's why it makes you happy. And in this, drunkenness helps forget those difficulties of the world that we live in. Paul calls, calls this debauchery. And this one, this is a hard word. It's an old translation of a difficult word, and I think the way we've used it has done harm because we only use it when we preach against alcohol or when we protest sexual ethics. It's pretty much the only time you hear it in the church, right? Most of us don't even know what the word means. The Greek actually speaks of a reckless living or an abandonment. One commentator says that what it really represents here in contrast with this making the best of the time, it talks about wasted time. And I think this hits the nail on the head. If we live in wisdom in order to redeem the time, we should not comfort ourselves in such a way that just abandons it as wasted. It's not warning against recreation, but rather showing that our solution to the difficulty of this world should not be a false joy that numbs us, 
but a different kind of joy, one that opens us up rather than shuts us down. And this joy is found in the Spirit. Rather, fill yourself with the Spirit. And in this context, the joy of the Spirit helps us redeem the time that we live in because this new walk discernment is done not from an attitude that numbs itself against the messiness of the world, but one that finds joy even within that messiness in the way only the Spirit can. Because what does the Spirit do? Well, when Jesus talks about the Spirit, the Greek, he famously calls him the paraclete. It's a word that we translate either as helper or as comforter because it's both. To grow us into obedient and wise children of the light, God sends his spirit, his helper, his comforter. And to comfort us in this process, we see in John 14, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. God sends us his Spirit to give us peace in the midst of a world that only has trouble and fear to offer. And this peace comes explicitly through his bringing us to remembrance in Christ. I can seek a joy in a broken world by shutting my eyes to the pain of it. Hiding from my inability to walk in obedience, hiding from the impossibility of wisdom, or I can seek my joy by looking at Jesus Christ through the joy of the Spirit. The one who saw this broken and sinful world, the one who knew me in my most helpless and depraved place, and instead of giving up, opened himself up to me and loved me. Came and lived obedient and wise in this mess, was scorned and suffered and died for my own sin and rose from the dead victorious over all the powers that oppress me, so that I might join him, so that I might walk in obedience and wisdom and joy in him. And when we see that, when the comforter reminds me of that beautiful truth, the truth that at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. When we look at our life through that lens of Jesus Christ, who has put to death and is putting to death the desperate and self-numbing people that we were and has brought to life and is resurrecting the new and joyful person that we are in him, then we can begin to walk that path of joy. Brothers and sisters, that is joy. That is a joy that transcends the difficulty of this world. A joy that inspires me to set back out on the path of this walk, to march further down it than maybe I did last time. That is a joy that makes even my struggle something to celebrate in him. Here's the fun thing. What does that joy look like to Paul? I love this. 
it looks like singing. It looks like lifting up my voice with my brothers and sisters in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in my heart. It looks like rejoicing. Give thanks always to the God and Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It looks like serving and caring for others out of our gratitude, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But this is what it means to live in a discerning fashion, and that's what he's talking about here, discernment. This is what it means to walk in this difficult but beautiful walk in Jesus Christ. To know that we are saved, that we who were at one time darkness are now light in the world, light in the Lord, sorry. And in that knowledge, in that truth, seek out what it means to be obedient, to be wise, and to be joyful in the world that we live in. And if you know him, this is the path that you're on it regardless of how you're doing on it this morning. This is the path we are on together. And we can walk that path in the confidence that Jesus has walked this path for us and is walking it with us. And I don't know, if you're here and you don't know him, some of this sounds crazy. But I'm guessing the part about the difficulty of the world that we live in doesn't. And I want to invite you to consider a new life where in Jesus Christ you can freely pursue obedience. You can freely pursue what it means to live in a good way with full awareness and freedom from condemnation from sin. You can safely seek out wisdom, even in the messiest places of life. And you can fully learn joy, one that opens you up rather than shuts you down. That's what he calls us to. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us to something. I am so thankful that there is no condemnation in my failure since I am alive in your son. But I'm also thank you, thankful that you don't just leave me here, but you call me into the life that I never knew I could live. I pray that you would grow us in our discernment and our knowledge of sin. in our understanding of wisdom, in our picture of joy, and in our courage and confidence to live in those things well. Amen.